Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome to the May 2000 edition of the Yale Press Podcast, the podcast of Yale University Press. And yes, there's an outbreak of spring fever on the Yale campus. My name is Chris Gondek, and in this episode, I'll be speaking with Josh Ozersky about the history of the American hamburger. White Castle had the idea, or rather Billy Ingram did, of getting a uh, healthy young man and putting him uh, into uh, a room where he would only eat hamburgers for 30 days under the supervision of a doctor. And it was determined that the conclusion of this... Uh, of this experiment that uh, the White Castle hamburger had every form of nutrition necessary for human health and that a person could live entirely on White Castle hamburgers. And Richard Thaler about the importance of structuring choices. Uh, The default option is really just what happens if you do nothing. A simple example of that is if you're watching television, there's a good chance that the, the next thing you know when one show is over, you're watching the show that comes on after it because if you do nothing, that's what happens. Now, of course, the costs of switching to another channel are trivial. Exactly one thumb click on the remote control, assuming you can find where you put the remote control. Stay tuned. The next time you pick up a hamburger, think about the fact that it is so much more than a sandwich. And in his new book, The Hamburger, A History, Josh Ozersky looks at the economic and social history of the American hamburger. Josh Ozersky is food editor online for New York Magazine. He's written for the New York Times, the New York Post, Saveur, and many other publications. The Hamburger, A History, is part of Yale University Press's Icons of America series, which also includes Gore Vidal's Inventing a Nation, Washington Adams Jefferson, Mark Kingwell's Nearest Thing to Heaven, The Empire State Building, and Steve Frazier's Wall Street. America's Dream Palace. Josh Ozersky, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Sure. So put me in a time machine and set it for the earliest date when I could have gotten a hamburger that I would recognize. Where am I and what's the date? You are in Wichita, Kansas in November of 1916. That, I think, is ground zero for the creation of the modern hamburger as we know it. No, scratch that. I don't think it's even the modern hamburger. I think that the hamburger, in any meaningful sense, begins with Walter Anderson's uh, small flat-top grill in Wichita. And he was the man that developed um, the the square hamburger? Wasn't he one of the original founders of the White Castle chain? He was indeed. In fact, he was the operational founder of the White Castle chain. Uh, His uh, realtor was a man named Billy Ingram, and Billy Ingram was the genius who saw the possibilities of vast franchising on the back of... uh, in the back of, I guess, what you would uh, call peerless uh, messaging power and the uh, genius of poetic marketing. Now, Anderson's hamburger was maybe square, maybe not. That might have been a later development, but the point is it was a flat ground beef patty cooked on a griddle and paired with a dedicated enriched bun. And as I describe in the book, I feel that the bun is really what defines the burger, and it wasn't until until there was a hamburger uh, with a bun that a hamburger 
could be said to have shimmered into existence philosophically. So what was it about the bun that was so important to the development of the hamburger? Well, think about it. I mean, there's been a lot of ground meat in the history of the world, and sometimes maybe somebody would stick it on a piece of bread or maybe not or whatever. If I'm hungry at home and I have some ground beef, maybe I'll stick it in a, uh, a piece of toast. That's not a hamburger. A hamburger means a bun. In your head, think about what you visualize when someone mentions a hamburger. What's the platonic ideal of a hamburger? It's a, it's a bun. A bun is a essential contributing aspect to what makes a hamburger taste the way it does and look the way it does. No well, burger, no bun. Beyond the discovery of the hamburger bun or the realization of its platonic ideal, did they have a marketing problem early on with hamburgers before the White Castle chain started? Well, they did because, uh, you know, the hamburgers were, uh, were largely considered to be uh, uh, cousins to sausages as the repository of every kind of uh, filthy scrap. That's why White Castle concentrated so strongly on the idea of, you know, its whiteness, because the whiteness was supposed to indicate purity. They also would grind the beef in front of customers, which a lot of good hamburger chains still do, to reassure them that they were actually getting ground beef and not, you know, the feet and heads or God knows what. Um, White Castle did have to run into, uh, did run into some issues, I believe, in the 1920s with women who didn't believe that hamburgers were really good for their children. Didn't they, didn't they commission some sort of study about hamburgers? They did. Uh, White Castle had the idea, or rather Billy Ingram did, of getting a uh, healthy young man and putting him uh, into uh, a room where he would only eat hamburgers for 30 days under the supervision of a doctor. And it was determined at the conclusion of this, uh, of this experiment that uh, the White Castle hamburger had every form of nutrition necessary for human health and that a person could live entirely on White Castle hamburgers. <laughs> and then the, now I also you have in the book a reproduction of a tea service menu for women you know, to try to convince them to use White Castle hamburgers in the, at their social functions. Was that successful for White Castle? Were they actually able to move some inventory with that? Well, they were able to get rid of some of the prejudices that women had about feeding hamburgers to their families. The, uh, the, uh, the agent for that change was a woman named uh, Julia Joyce. That wasn't her real name. Uh, she was a kind of a, uh, uh, an imaginary figure like uh, Betty Crocker or Mrs. Paul. But unlike Betty Crocker and Mrs. Paul, there was actually a, a lady that went around playing Julia Joyce. She was the official hostess of White Castle, and she would... She would spread the gospel of uh, she would spread the gospel of White Castle's wholesomeness and purity to her sisters, uh, America's matrons. Well, let's go to the, the big gorilla of American hamburgers, McDonald's. Everybody thinks about McDonald's as the iconic hamburger chain, and people that follow their history know that Ray Kroc was really the man who drove it. But I found in one of the more interesting parts of your book your discussion of the McDonald's brothers, um, Richard and Maurice. What did they contribute to the American hamburger? Well, uh, Richard and Maurice uh, McDonald were like the uh, Romulus and Remus of the McDonald's hamburger empire. You know, they're considered largely dim and mythic figures today, and they weren't in on the corporate founding of it, but they're the ones that actually first developed uh, the McDonald's operational system, which was basically uh, uh, what could loosely be called a production line, you know, I mean, an assembly line. They wanted to have a, a hamburger chain that essentially had, 
you know, no seats, no service, tableware, car hops, anything like that. People could walk up, get a hamburger, walk away, and essentially it would be a continuously running uh, hamburger-serving machine. And that's basically what McDonald's would later go on to perfect, but they were the original inventors of it. Because the early McDonald's restaurants were just traditional kind of car hop-type restaurants, weren't they? Well, the McDonald's had a restaurant in Pasadena, and... uh, it, it was a car hop, you know, I mean, you would drive up there and honk and like a girl would come out and roller skates or whatever, or maybe not, maybe she didn't have roller skates, but the point is that um, it was a slow and laborious process, and because there was pretty girls there, there was a bunch of juvenile delinquents that would hang around, and uh, it was just bad business. They thought it would be better to get rid of the car hops and everybody else and just have people come and buy hamburgers. They also originally had a lot of different food, you know, and they had barbecue and they had hot dogs and so forth, and they pared down with laser-like focus to the hamburger business, and from that was born an empire upon which the sun never set. <laughs> I can say, obviously, the experiment was a success, but early on, didn't they meet some resistance when they switched over their menu? Yeah, I mean, you know, people missed the car hops, you know. I mean, already, uh, even at that early stage, some people found it a little bit impersonal, but the uh, the efficiency, quality, and, uh, and novelty of the new process was more than enough to uh, make it essentially the most successful hamburger restaurant in America. Uh, they eventually were on the cover of American Restaurant Magazine, and uh, it, it drew entrepreneurs and restaurateurs you know, like people would go to watch a, a moonshot now. Well, if uh, if the McDonald's brothers were our Romulus and Remus and uh, McDonald's itself was the empire, let's talk about Caesar, uh, Ray Kroc. Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what kind of man Ray Kroc would have been to work for? Well, he would have been uh, uh, almost unendurably difficult. He was irascible, hard-headed, uh, capricious, angry, hostile, buttoned up, uptight, uh, just generally uh, the very picture of a bad boss. At the same time, though, he was supremely supple in his responses to how things could get done, and he would hire people who didn't agree with him and who he didn't like just because McDonald's was the main thing and not Ray Kroc. He was fond of saying that if two executives have the same opinion, one of them is superfluous. And uh, in the same way that McDonald's was able to gather all the diverse impulses and instincts of thousands of different small business owners around the country it was also able to gather the strategies and imaginations and initiatives of you know eventually what would be hundreds of different executives and operational people and marketers and advertisers and, and operators too it's a really challenging management thing for him essentially he was creating an army of entrepreneurs and generally superstars don't deal well in teams how was he able to manage that tension Well, uh, the genius of the McDonald's system was that it was the first time that anyone was able to really combine the kind of Kremlin-like corporate control that big business could uh, offer with the the energy and flexibility of small business entrepreneurs. And the way that uh, they did that was McDonald's had an operational manual, and that that told people uh, just how to run the business, but they could do whatever they wanted in terms of how to market it and advertise it and so forth. And um, the company also had a a kind of an iron control over them as well. The way that the McDonald's system worked, at least in the early going, was that McDonald's would go up to a guy that owned a vacant lot and they would say, uh, listen, um, 
if you build a McDonald's on this lot, we will lease it on a good term for 20 years from you. And it's not doing you any good now, but, you know, this is, uh, this is what we can offer you. So the guy would build a McDonald's. Then they would lease the, then he would, uh, they would uh, lease it. Then they would turn around and they would sublease the McDonald's to the franchisee for more. So then they would be making a little something from leasing to the franchisee, but the franchisee got a good price, a ready-to-go McDonald's, and it was worked into the deal that the more money the McDonald's made, the more the rent went up. And if the if the franchisee wouldn't do the right thing, if they tried to, you know, cook cheap French fries or gnarly hamburgers or cut corners, boom, they were out. Uh, they wouldn't get their uh, franchise renewed, and uh, they also uh, had the lease problems. Is this why Ray Kroc often said that McDonald's wasn't a hamburger company but a real estate company? Ray Kroc never said that, actually. Oh, who um, was it? Well, um, I think that Harry Sonnenborn may have said it uh, later uh, in history, and he was the uh, financial uh, genius behind McDonald's. He's the one that came up with, with that arrangement um, that I just described to you which was really brilliant because it allowed McDonald's basically to uh, spread and expand without any capital of its own. Um, he occasionally would say that. He wasn't a great uh, believer in hamburgers the way Kroc was or Kroc's uh, uh, deputies. Most of the products one sees in McDonald's nowadays, how many were developed by, what does to say, uh, McDonald's Central Command, and how many were developed by the franchisees? Most of them were developed by the franchisees. I mean, this is another example of the sort of, you know, a, the benefit of, of harnessing all that energy. You had, you know, the Big Mac was invented by Jim Delegati in Pittsburgh. The uh, filet fish was invented by Luke Wren in um, Cincinnati, where there was a lot of Catholics who couldn't eat meat on Fridays. Breakfast was developed by, uh, by a franchisee. I mean, even Ronald McDonald himself was developed by a franchisee. And this all happens because Kroc allowed people to, you know, um, have a little bit of uh, have a little bit of headway, have a little bit of a, a lead. The hamburger a history is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Josh Ozerski, go to www.yalebooks.com/podcast. Every day we make decisions on topics ranging from personal investments to schools for our children to the meals we eat to the causes we champion. Unfortunately, we often choose poorly. In the new book, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein discuss ways that choices can be structured for better outcomes. Richard Thaler, whom I'll be speaking with in this interview, is the Robert P. Gwynn Professor of Behavioral Science and Economics and Director of the Center for Decision Research at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Chicago. Richard Thaler, thanks for taking time to talk to Yale University Press today. Uh, thank you for having me. What exactly is a choice architect? A choice architect is really anyone who influences the environment in which people choose. Um, consider the example of a, uh, you go into a restaurant, somebody has written the menu. Uh, they have a lot of decisions to make. Uh, what order to put the dishes, how to describe them. In, so, in some restaurants, some words appear in bold. What, what we stress in the book is that all these little tiny features influence the choices people make. And so the, the people who are in charge of those influences are the people we call choice architects. 
one of the ideas that uh, comes through in the book is uh, libertarian paternalism, which are two words I never would have thought I would put together until I read this book. Could you explain what libertarian paternalism is? Well, uh, it's true that some people have thought that we were crazy to employ both of these words in the same book. And, uh, but the way we use the words, we find uh, them not only to be uh, lovable, but uh, compatible. So by libertarian, all we mean is that we stress that people should retain the right to choose. So in any policy we devise, um, there's always the chance for people to uh, do whatever they want. And, and so we call our policies libertarian in that sense. By paternalism, we simply mean that we try to make people as well off as they can be as judged by themselves. So we don't believe that we know better than others uh, uh, about what, what's good for you, but we, we think that people often have a good sense by themselves uh, of what's good for them and somehow just don't uh, get the job done. They're, we're absent-minded, we're lazy, we're impulsive. And so we design policies that help us overcome our own human frailties uh, w without... Uh, forcing anybody to do anything. Let's talk about one of the choice architects that, uh, I guess, choice architectural designs people might come up with or face, which is uh, the best way for people to make the best choices to give them as many choices as possible. If I were to come to you and say, you know, I'm going to design this uh, project, and that's the uh, idea I'm going with, what would I be missing as far as choice architecture? It, 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 some people do seem to think that as long as you give people as many choices as possible, then you're really doing them a great service. But the, the problem with that is that uh, oftentimes having lots of choices can be demotivating or even paralyzing. Uh, take the example of 401k plans. Um, it used to be that in a typical plan there would be half a dozen options. Now some plans have 50, 60, even 100 choices. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the first thing is that the more choices there are, the longer it takes for people to sign up. When, when men, many people seem to be just paralyzed by seeing all those mutual funds and not knowing what to do, so they just procrastinate about joining. The second is that the more choices there are, the more likely people are to choose the safest plan uh, or... Um, so that might be uh, like a money market fund. And um, for most people saving for retirement, they're just not going to accumulate enough if they don't invest it in a decent portfolio. So, so what we suggest is, sure, it's fine to have lots and lots of options, but help people who don't want to wade through all those options with sensible default options. So the way we would like to see a 401k plan structured is when you sign in, uh, when, you, when you're first joining, you'd be asked, would you like to invest in the default plan or would you like to choose a plan for yourself? And if they want the default one, they're done. And that way, the people who want to invest all of their money in Romanian tech stocks are welcome to do that, but the people who want the firm to help choose some 
diversified, low-cost portfolio for them, uh, with the aid of some experts, can can do that and sleep easy. Could you talk about the power of the default option? I kept getting out of the book that this is a really, really powerful tool that maybe isn't utilized quite as much as it should be. Well, the default option is really just what happens if you do nothing. A simple example of that is if you're watching television, there's a good chance that the next thing you know when one show is over, you're watching the show that comes on after it. Because if you do nothing, that's what happens. Now, of course, the costs of switching to another channel are trivial. Exactly one thumb click on the remote control, assuming you can find where you put the remote control. Um, but uh, So that's a default option. Now, what we've seen in numerous settings is that whatever the choice architect has designated as the default option, many, many people take. And there are lots of reasons for that. One is just uh, what we call the yeah-whatever heuristic, meaning that some people will just say, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever, and they'll just take the easiest course. Um, that could be out of laziness or inattention uh, or just not knowing what to do. It, it also is the case that whatever option is designated as the default, many people will think, perhaps mistakenly, that the choice architect has picked that default for a reason. And that's often just not the case. So in 401k plans, the default is typically not to join the plan. You have to fill out a bunch of forms if you want to join. Now, no one thinks that it's a good idea for people not to join 401k plans, especially if the company is giving a match. Joining the 401k plan is a no-brainer. But... um, when something is designated as the default, people may think, well, they must think that's good for me, and that's why they picked it. You are a professor of behavioral science and economics at the Graduate School of Business at the University of Chicago. And although there's talk in this book about different types of choices, it really does come back to the question of behavioral economics versus rational economics, what I believe in the book you refer to as econs versus humans. Uh, so are most choice architects architectural designs, really designed for uh, economic man, somebody who can make these choices rationally as opposed to how humans really behave? Well, I think that uh, most designs don't give enough attention to the fact that we're humans. And many successful designs do. So, you know, I think that the popularity of many of the recent products by Apple is a good example of good design and good design that works for humans. It's very intuitive to figure out how to operate your iPhone or, or your Mac. And uh, there are the ways of employing good design are in all kinds of domains. So in the building I work in, uh, the, we have a brand-new building uh, for the business school. Uh, the faculty are uh, on three different floors, the third, fourth, and fifth floors. But we're connected by open stairwells. And... You see faculty all day uh, dashing up and down those stairs, and I'm on the fourth floor, but I just feel like my neighbors on the third floor and the fifth floor are adjacent to us. If, I, to, and, uh, if I'm going to one of those floors, I always take one of those stairwells. To get down to the second floor, I have to go into a normal stairwell, sort of dark and unapproachable, and... Um, even though I'm not particularly claustrophobic, 
uh, I find something off-putting about going into that stairwell, and I think other people do. So this is a good example of real architecture being great choice architecture because these open stairwells not only make us uh, more interactive with our colleagues, but we manage to get a little bit of exercise at the same time. I kept thinking while I was reading this book that one of the big issues behind helping people make choices is it's often hard for them to understand the full importance of the options they're given. And I started asking myself, well, how much of this is just bad writing, bad design, and how much of it is sometimes... I want to say the rational decision of the other agent trying to hide the hide the full import of choices that people can make. Well, I think uh, we're not naive, and it's clear both things are going on. So uh, we tell the story in the book about Cass uh, Cass Sunstein, my co-author, getting an offer from uh, his American Express card for three months free subscriptions to five magazines. And uh, he thought that was great. And, uh, but in the fine print, it said that for your convenience, we will automatically renew those uh, subscriptions at the end of those three months. Now, um, as Cash sheepishly uh, owns up, he's not gotten around to canceling any of those magazines, even though he hates them. So... Uh, it, there's no doubt that some companies will use choice architecture to uh, nudge you to buy their products and to nudge you in directions that are good for them. So uh, nudging can be good, can be, yeah, nudging can be done uh, for good or for evil. And our book is an attempt to explain how nudging works. And we try to nudge the reader to think about ways of using these tools to help people, but uh, there's no doubt that you could use precisely the same tools uh, to bamboozle people. Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness, is on sale now. To hear an extended interview with Richard Thaler, go to www.yalebooks.com podcast. One hundred years ago, William Howard Taft and William Jennings Bryan were vying to become President of the United States. Henry Ford produced his first Model T. The Cubs won the World Series. And in New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University Press was founded. For information about how we are celebrating our centenary year, you can go to www.yalebooks.com centennial. Dan Lee, uh, the show's executive producer, and his wife decided to celebrate the centennial in their own way and are pleased to announce the birth of their first son, Jesse Montgomery Lee born on March 28, 2008. So if you're on the Yale campus and see a happy and sleep-deprived man walking around the press offices, stop Dan and congratulate him. For more information about the show or to subscribe to the feed, go to any podcast aggregator such as iTunes, Odeo, or any number of sites, or go to the Yale Press website, www.yalebooks.com podcast, and look for the subscription button on the podcast page. You'll also find the show notes on the Yale Press log. My name is Chris Gondek, and if any comments or questions about the show, feel free to drop me a line at yup.email.news at yale.edu. And that's it for this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. Dan Lee is the executive producer and proud papa, and my name is Chris Gondek, and I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next month. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press Podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. 
For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com. Copyright 2008. Yale University, Yale University Press. Press. All rights reserved. All rights reserved.